Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That was Psalm chapter 2. Makes me think about the kinds of things we're going to get into Daniel as we start this book today. Makes me think about the kinds of things we observe in the world today. And it could be fitting to start with the question, how is it that we as Christians are supposed to think about global catastrophe? Things like the current Afghanistan situation. Things like battling nations and even saber-rattling from Russia or China. Of course, the U.S. How are we to think about these nations raging around the world? Today we start this book of Daniel. And I think what might be most helpful for us is to kind of clear the workspace and get our minds right about the context of what's happening here so that we can be best served by it. I love woodworking. It's one of my pastimes. It's very common for, the, for my, my wife to give me a, a list of projects she wants me to do. And sometimes she even specifies a piece of furniture. So research how to do it, draw up some plans, make sure I get the approval and I head out to the garage on a specified day to start the work. And it is not uncommon for several hours of my labor to be done and her to come out in the garage and look out there and say, what have you done? And I'm like, all I've done is organize the tools. I've been cleaning up from the last project. And why? Because sometimes that's the best way to get started. Make sure you have everything laid out in front of you and you're prepped and ready to go. I anticipate in the book of Daniel, we're going to be able to move at a much quicker pace than we have in other books, especially New Testament books, where in one verse might be piles of doctrine. Because Daniel's written in a narrative style. We get to see some poetry in there. We get to see prophecy or apocalyptic literature. But the book of Daniel is largely a narrative. It's a story. It's a list of stories that take place during the lifetime of this young prophet who will become an old prophet, Daniel. But today, we're going to start slow in order to set the stage. We're not going to get very far in the book today. We're only going to get through the first two verses, and I think from this point, we'll probably pick up steam. If you have your Bibles with you, go to Daniel chapter 1. We're just going to be in verses 1 through 2. I want to stick those up for you right now, and we can read those out loud together. Pray. I'm going to go back through a little bit at a time. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And so we're going to start with. Let's pray. Father, this morning we're just going to read a couple of verses and walk through these and try to orient ourselves to the story, the whole time frame of Daniel's life. What was going on in redemptive history? What was going on with your people Israel? What was going on with this particular prophet Daniel? And Father, we don't only want to gain historical knowledge today. Our hope is not just that we understand things that happened in the past, but we want to understand those things so that we can apply them well to our present day and even to our future. Oh, that's a challenge to do. It's especially a challenge in Holy Spirit-inspired text like this. And so we need for you to send that very same Spirit, your Holy Spirit, who inspired Daniel to write these things and later authors to preserve them down to the ages. We need your Holy Spirit to guide us today. So Father, I pray you'd send him into this place. You'd equip us to hear your word and act accordingly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read this passage again here, just these two verses that we're going to start out with. And we're going to break down the parts of this by way of story, looking back at what came before it and set ourselves up for what's coming after it. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, we could go back just a couple of years. We could go back a few months or even all the way back to creation if we wanted to in the starting of this. But I'm going to go back to the days of Moses. Moses, of course, was the prophet who brought the people of God out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness where they were made a nation and they were given a law. They entered into covenant relationship with God. They spent 40 years in the wilderness because of their cowardice and were eventually allowed to enter into the promised land, Israel proper. Before entering in, Moses delivers a word to the people. And in that delivery, he gives his people both a warning and a prophecy of their future. He warns them to not reject the covenant that they made with God. And he foretells a day that they will be overthrown by a foreign enemy. I want to go ahead and just summarize that portion of Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy 28 and 29. I'm just going to read a handful of verses in there uh, in order, but I'm just going to jump quickly. So just listen along to the kinds of things that are being told to the Israelites way back there before they even entered into the land. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. They will besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. 
There you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done to this to the land? What caused the heat of his great anger? And the people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So the Lord warns that if they turn against him, he will overthrow them with a foreign nation. And more than just a warning, it's not just an if, it's a certainty. He prophesies that this will absolutely happen to the people. But more than that, the Lord also promises Israel back then and throughout the New Old Testament on many occasions that he would not completely eradicate Israel. I'm going to continue on in that Deuteronomy section. Let's go to one chapter later, chapter 30. If you return to the Lord your God, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. This is the same kind of thing is said all over the Old Testament. It's said again all the way up into the days just as this siege is taking place through the prophet Jeremiah. I'll, re I'll read this to you from Jeremiah 46. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. So God promises not only that he will send the people out of the land, but that he will bring them back. And he foretells this before they even go into the land to take it. And a covenant is established with the people where, they, where literally the people stand there uh, before the Lord all assembled together. And Moses asked them, will you enter into this promise with God? And they go, yes, we will. Will you bind yourself to this promise before him? Yes, we will. They made that covenant with them and confirmed it three times and then entered into the land. Now, a quick question that might be helpful just to make sure we understand the answer to this. Why was the preservation of Israel so important? There were many wicked nations. God just utterly decimated, wiped off the surface of the earth. You and I will not meet an actual Babylonian or a Persian. We will not meet somebody who can claim a blood lineage back to some of those nations. Some of those nations that were driven out in the land of Canaan, utterly gone. And yet, God preserves Israel. Why? Why Israel? Well, you might say real quick, because he promised he wouldn't. That's true. That's true. But why? Why? What was going on there? All the way back to the days of creation, when Adam and Eve first sinned and were kicked out of the garden, God promised that he would bring an heir. He would bring an offspring of Eve who would make right what they had made wrong. And at the days of Abraham, God clarifies that offspring will come through your family line and through your son of promise, Isaac. And so Israel was to be preserved so that the Messiah could be born, that the Savior of the world could come into this place. That was what God had said. It was going to be through Israel. Why did Israel need to survive? Because if there's no Israel, there's no Savior. That was the way that God determined it would work. 
He promised to deliver the world. He promised to deliver the world through a Savior that came from the Israelites. And that's why that promise was so important. So back to the story. Israel makes its way into the promised land. Eventually, they establish a monarchy. King Saul, King David, King Solomon. After the days of King Solomon, though, the nation divides into two kingdoms. You might know this if you're familiar with Bible history, but you need to get this in your mind so you understand what's going on in a lot of the Old Testament. The nation's divided into two. The northern kingdom retains the name Israel, while the southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. That's the Judah that's being referred to here in Daniel chapter 1. Now, over the span of several centuries, those two kingdoms exist together, but they are ruled by 19 kings each, if you do the count, until their respective destructions. The northern kingdom was ruled almost entirely by wicked kings who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and it was eventually destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The southern kingdom of Judah which had as its capital Jerusalem, home of the temple of God, was ruled by a succession of both good and evil kings. Now the last of the good or godly kings was King Josiah. And he was killed in battle by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, who would then go on to pursue Josiah's oldest son, Jehoahaz, and take him into captivity. So with Josiah and his son Jehoahaz out of the picture, Pharaoh Necho places Josiah's younger son, Eliakim, on the throne in Jerusalem, renaming him Jehoiakim. This is Josiah's second son. And it was during his day that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes to Jerusalem and lays siege against it, all of which was prophesied by God. Judah falls to Babylon in 605 B.C. That's the time frame of what's going on here. Northern kingdom wiped out. Southern kingdom finally overcome. The attention of the Bible will turn to Judah more than Israel. Israel's barely talked about anymore. It's really mostly Judah. Why? Because Jesus will come through the line of Judah. That's why. The Messiah is king. That's what matters in the flow of the Bible. That's why. With all of world history that's playing out, Anytime somebody fractures off and goes to another part of the world, the focus is on that group because that's the lineage of the Messiah. That's where Daniel's going to continue to talk about. Now, question. You know the answer if you've been listening carefully here. But why did Judah fall? Because just like their cousins to the north, they hoard after other gods, profaning the name of the one true God. And so God made good on his promise to destroy them. And he did so by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. That spins us up historically to the passage today. Let me restate the historical context in a single line. That at once faithful people of God turned their backs on him, and they are overcome by a foreign enemy who captures the people and removes them from the promised land to live in exile in Babylon. That's... What's going on? It's going to be very helpful for you now to have this in mind as we read through Daniel, okay? If you study on your own, have this in mind. This is, this is the time period. This is what's happening. This is who's in control. You're going to have to know this. 
But there's something else you need to keep in mind too that I think will be really shaping to what you do with this text. There are some similarities between us and the Jewish exiles to be sure, but there are also some easy to mistake but very critical differences between what happened to these people in this day and what we are living out in our own day. This is so important for us to understand as we continue to make our way in Daniel. But this is the kind of thing that when we read through Bible passages anywhere, especially Old Testament passages, it is super important that we know how to build the appropriate applicational bridges from that text to our day. If we fail to build the bridges at all, then we may conclude, like many theologically liberal Christians, that the Old Testament has nothing to offer us other than stories with no real applicational value. Huh, fancy that. Like learning history. And only history. For no other point. But on the other hand, if we neglect to acknowledge that any bridges need to be made and just pick up the texts and drop them on ourselves, we find ourselves in a whole mess of misapplications. For example, like, We see passages in the Bible that tell somebody, get up and go kill all the people in the land. That verse is not for you and me. We need to build the bridge, right? Oh, that's the Joshua. He's going into the promised land and that. So we do that. We have to do that with pastors all the time. We've got to do that here. I've been saying for weeks as I've been kind of announcing, we're going through Daniel. I think a lot of it's very timely. I think a lot of it will be very helpful because we're going through circumstances in our own day that can mirror a little bit of what we've seen back there. And we've watched faithful people operate in difficult circumstances then we can learn from the day. All of those statements, I think, are true. But they have to be seen with the right differences and similarities in mind in order for us to apply rightly. I'm just going to name for you this morning four differences that I think are very key that we're going to have to have kind of on the top left corner of our notebook as we go through to refer back to, oh, that's right, this part's going to be different. First difference is this. Israel, or namely Judah here, was a nation under a covenant, and they had broken that covenant. If you were with us through our um, time in Hebrews, our previous sermon series, we walked through for a while. Even for a couple of those sermons, and you might have heard because we talked about it so many times, the old covenant was a conditional covenant. And the condition of that covenant was the faithfulness of the people, of the Israelites, of the Judahites. Over and over and over again, it says to the people, if you do not uphold your end of the covenant, you will be removed from the land. Over and over it says this. That's the, it, that was the place for these people then. It was never expected, of course, that they'd be perfect. So, so before you go away, a second. It was never expected they would do this perfectly. That is why God gave them a system of atonement sacrifices. Listen, you're going to mess up. So here's the covenant, but when you break it, here's how you make peace again. Here's how you atone for that sin. But if the nation turned from God and did not repent, he promised that they would be removed from the land and they would be removed by invasion of a foreign king. So the conditions of the covenant, obey my commands. Do not turn after false gods. Our nation today is not under that kind of covenant with God. And for the record, our nation is not under the new covenant of God either. 
pausing to make my theonomic brothers uncomfortable for a moment. Here's the point of clarity. If someone were to ask, Rich, are you saying nations today have no obligations under God? Absolutely not. I am not saying that at all. Civil authorities today are certainly obligated by God to punish what he calls evil and to protect what he calls good. Additionally, every individual soul that comprises those nations has been commanded to repent of his or her sins and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus. Amen. But this is really important to understand. In the Old Testament, God chose to work through a singular nation in a way distinctive from other nations. In the Old Testament, it was a come and see religion. It was come to the temple in Jerusalem. You want to do the atonement sacrifice? You want, you want to actually be part of the religious systems that are here? Come to Jerusalem. Come to those people. That's what they were supposed to do. But now, Jesus has sent his disciples out to all the nations that there would be representatives from every tribe, every tongue, every nation singing praises to God in heaven. It's a go and tell commission. Our job is not to go find people and bring them back to Israel. Our job is to go out and make disciples in all the nations where they are. This means that on every nation on earth, eventually, we should expect to find some people who are in the new covenant and others who aren't. That's different than Daniel's day. Because in Daniel's day, Israel was under a covenant with God that Babylon was not. You've got to hear that. There is no geopolitical entity today that enjoys a particular kind of national covenant relationship with God that another nation doesn't. doesn't work. To be sure, there are some nations who are operating in a more God-honoring way than others. To be sure. But we do not bear national covenants like there were back in the old day. That's one major difference. All the people in Judah had made a promise before God in their lineage to honor him as a nation in that way. Babylon had not done that. And that's the stage we see this played out on. Second difference. God had warned and prophesied that Israel would be destroyed. That Judah would be destroyed. Very clearly. We cannot say this of any individual nation in our own day. Not with certainty. There's no explicit condition given for the preservation of nations today. There is no explicit condition in the Bible given for the preservation of nations today. You need to hear that. I grew up in... Uh, evangelicalism. I grew up in uh, gospel-preaching churches. I, I grew up around believers all my life. I was greatly, greatly blessed to have that upbringing. I'm so grateful for that. But I remember hearing one, one section of the Bible appealed to all the time, every election cycle of my life. Every time something went down out in the world, this verse was used. In fact, I saw it made into t-shirts. I saw it uh, written on walls of church buildings and on plaques in people's houses and stuff like that. It's this verse. You might know this if you grew up in Christendom. 2, Corinthians 7, 4, 2 Chronicles 7.14. Excuse me. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That is not a promise for Americans. It's not. It is given to Solomon at the dedication of the temple. It is given to the Israelites. That's the land he will heal. That's what he's talking about. 
There is no promise that you and I, if we pray hard enough, that America land gets healed. It doesn't work like that. Listen, principally, we find things that are true here. Ought we pray? Yes. Ought we pray for the healing of our nation? Absolutely. Is there any hope for the healing of America apart from the prayers to our King Jesus? No, there's no hope apart from him. But that's not what this verse is saying. This was written to a particular people at a particular time. In other words, God has not prophesied that China will be destroyed or that Russia will be conquered or that America will be overthrown. We don't have those verses. Principally, when a people honor God, we should expect that it might go better. And when they don't, we should expect judgment. But we are not given the word that the Israelites were given. They could literally go chapter, verse, we're going down. And many did do that. But they were not heeded by the masses. God can overthrow any empire he desires whenever he wills. It is also true that God may overlook the offenses of any empire and preserve their place in history whenever he wills. You and I do not know what will happen to the U.S. And anyone who claims to know what will happen to our country in the future is guessing. Educated guess, perhaps. But conjecture, nonetheless. Here's why this is so important. If we get this mixed up and we start unraveling the scriptures, placing in uh, uh, modern nations and then rolling them back up, and then things don't come to pass the way that we expected, God, are you unfaithful? No. He didn't tell you what's happening to China next year. You get what I'm saying? God had warned and prophesied Israel would be destroyed. There was no question. There was no debate. There ought not have been. They could say that with certainty. In Daniel's time, God had explicitly promised the people that if they turned from them, him and did not repent, he would destroy their land. That's exactly what he did. He even told them how he would do it. Israel should have been seeing that. And because of this, because of his prophecy, number three, the Israelites should have surrendered to Babylon and submitted to King Nebuchadnezzar. The Israelites should have surrendered to Babylon and submitted to King Nebuchadnezzar. That might sound crazy to our modern American freedom-loving ears. But it's exactly what God told the people through the prophet Jeremiah. I don't know, if you're, if you're like me and you ever think, like, what would you do if a foreign nation invaded your land? What would you do? I'd pull some Red Dawn stuff. That's what I'd do. Get together with some buddies and we'd fight back, Right? If you and I lived in Israel in this day, we would be sinning against God to resist Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar had come against them, laid siege to the city, the people sought to organize a resistance. But God spoke through Jeremiah, forbidding them from doing so. I'm going to read verbatim what Jeremiah says on behalf of God to the people. He says this in Jeremiah 27, verses 5 through 8. Listen very carefully to this. It is I, God says, by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. 
Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. This is very important. It is not true for our day. This is not the way. You and I ought not think any time that a nation is invaded by another one, ha, ha, stop, they're here, they're in charge now. No resistance, no fighting back. No, it doesn't work like that. It is appropriate today in Afghanistan for there to be resistance against the wicked Taliban. They don't have to look at this and go, ha, ha, we're not allowed to resist. That is not what it says here. That is what happens when Israel had been prophesied. They would fall. They would be conquered. And God told them, don't you dare resist. This is my discipline. They were not to pout through it. That's why we don't call Daniel and his contemporaries cowards for not organizing resistance to this foreign government. They were obeying the command of God. How could they work in the king's palace and not organize some coup? Because they were obedient to God. That's why. They were supposed to be there. They were supposed to play that role. And so, another bridge built. We're not, we're not the same. We don't pull that up and drop it anywhere. You and I, that was unique. Last difference that might be helpful to have in mind as we go into the rest of Daniel. This period of exile was limited to a very specific time frame. Some of you might remember what it is. 70 years. Jeremiah said as much in Jeremiah 29.10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, to Israel. So before they were ever taken up and exiled out to Babylon, God says 70 years and I'm bringing you back. For the record, we're going to see that several times in the book of Daniel. He will reference that same time period because he knows there's a countdown. The people then could literally have had a countdown calendar to when they were going back, to within the year. You and I cannot and ought not try to have a calculator like that. We ought not try to count down to our day of judgment. We don't, we don't know how that works. We don't know the timing. But they did. We must keep these thoughts in mind. And I'll try to remind you of these little, little bullet points as we get moving because major errors in the interpretation of the book of Daniel oftentimes have rode in on the back of one of those errors, not understanding one of those differences. And if you don't quite see why yet, I believe absolutely in future weeks you'll go, oh, that, oh that's why. Bookmark those. I'll revisit them again as we make our way through this book. You read these two verses again one more time. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. What's the deal going on with those vessels? Well, those vessels, of course, were the ones used in the temple of God for worship. They were, they were to be utilized by the priests there. There's nothing mystical about them, nothing magical about them, but they were a symbol of who was in control. And they're going to return several more times in the book of Daniel. We'll see them again. They're going to come, come into play. So if you're wondering, 
That's a weird little kind of thing to point out right here in this story. There's tons of crazy stuff that happened during this time period. And the vessels, the cups, and the bowls, the plates, that, that's what makes the cut for the first two verses. It's because we're going to see again later. So this is foreshadowing something we need to know uh, for another time in the book, a couple more times. God has turned his people over to their enemies, just like he turned over these vessels to that same enemy. And what did Babylon do? What did Nebuchadnezzar do when he got these things out of the temple of God? He takes them into the temple of his God. What's the picture there? It's pretty obvious, right? Babylon saw their victory of Israel as a triumph over God. Again, that's going to come up again later in the book. So a whole bunch is being laid out here so that when we get to those points later, we're reminded of just enough historical context that we don't lose track of what's going down there, the significance of those events. But Babylon thought God had lost, and their false gods had won. Which brings up the question, why did Babylon win? You and I have the benefit of foresight. We, we, we're way down the road of history. We can look back and see how this plays out. We can read the events that took place then and later. They didn't have that. Why did Babylon win? Well, it says right here, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And verse 2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That's why he won. If God is for you, who can be against you? But if God is against you, he will be overthrown. No matter what resistance they could have mustered, nothing could have changed that prophesied outcome. So what did God observe in Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon? What did God see in that guy that made him go, ah, this is my, this is my chosen servant for this moment? What was it about him? What made Nebuchadnezzar worthy of that victory? In other words, who's the good guy in this conflict? If you and I were to watch this like a movie and see the battle play out, who would we be rooting for? Nebuchadnezzar? Judah? Who are the good guys? Well, none of the above. This is actually really important and helpful for us. How are we to view the rise and fall of nations? That's how I started out our sermons this day. How are we to look at those things? How are we to see the nations raging and, and think about that? That God is moving. I want you to, with me right now, think about Afghanistan and the things that have gone down this last week. I, I confess my mind was dominated by thoughts of that nation this week and what's been going down and the devastation that's happening and the wickedness of our country and the leaders that will produce more blood. How are we to think about conflicts like Babylon and Judah? Even conflicts like today. They're not exactly the same as we just walked through. There's differences between our day and there. But how are we to see these things? Ask the same question we just asked about Nebuchadnezzar and Judah here. Which nation in today's conflict with Afghanistan is the good guy? Which one's the one we should be rooting for? Who's the nation that's honoring God? Is it America? 
Is it Afghanistan? Is it the Taliban? I confess, I am furious about this. I know many of you are and have seen this, things that have been going down. I've heard people say things like, well, the violence of the Taliban has led to the deaths of many innocent people, even children. Brothers and sisters, our nation has slaughtered more innocent babies than 1,000 Taliban armies. The Taliban belittles and abuses women. Are we as Americans more righteous than they? Is our view of sexuality and gender purer than theirs? They oppress women in many ways, to be sure. They even demand that they cover up their bodies and faces as a sign of submission and modesty. We do the opposite, out of lust. We exploit the sexuality of women. And we call it female empowerment. Well, the Taliban has been known to abuse children. In our high and perverted arrogance, many of the most powerful voices in our nation demand in sync with shrieking throngs of delusional supporters that children ages 8, 9, and 10 be allowed or encouraged to mutilate their own bodies in the name of gender reassignment. And all this madness apart from parental consent and we stand up as high and mighty against those, those foolish rubes out in Afghanistan. Look at that Taliban, how wicked they are. We are the righteous Americans to solve this. The Taliban is wicked and godless deserving of judgment. But are we really, as a nation, holier? Are we more God-honoring? Guys, the Taliban's been around for like 25 years. How many generations of Americans have sanctioned wicked activity? Of course, there are some faithful Americans, to be sure. I hope we may be counted among faithful believers who are American citizens. But it is not for the faithful minority that nations rage. You know, don't you? There was a faithful remnant in Judah, in Israel before then. But it was not because of them that Judah was destroyed. This is not a battle of wicked versus righteous. Neither in Daniel's day, neither that event, nor our own. It is a battle of people who worship one false god versus people who worship another false god. In our current conflict we see today, much centering around Afghanistan, you know that there's so many other parts and pieces, other countries on the planet today, you know this. All the players are godless. All of them. The Taliban hates God. America, institutionally, hates God. Even Afghanistanis, who we all see as victims in this moment of history, 99.7% of Afghanis are Muslim. They do not worship the one true God. They are his enemies. They hate him. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, just like the Taliban, just like America, just like China, just like Russia, just like Israel, and just like Babylon. 
all of human history playing out before our eyes is not God saving the good guys from the bad guys. But God in his good mercy redeeming the bad guys. You need to know this if you don't. You were born into this world a sinner, an enemy of God, not a friend of God, not a conscientious objector watching the battle play out. You are born an enemy of God. This is what the Bible tells us. And all of us, this is true. We've all sinned against this holy God. None of us are righteous. No, not one. We have chosen to sin. We have set our hearts to do so. We have not given the love and worship and authority due to the one true God of the universe. And we are deserving of his righteous wrath, of eternal conscious torment and hell. That's what we deserve, where King Jesus reigns for all of eternity. That is what every one of us deserves. But only in his good mercy and grace does he provide a way for us to have forgiveness of sins in his son, Jesus Christ. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sends his perfect son into this world to live perfectly and to go to the cross, bearing the punishment for sins that you and I deserve. And only by belief in him can we have eternal life. And he raised the son up from the dead, proving once and for all, for all of those who would look upon him. And see, he knew what he was talking about. His gospel is true. If you've not repented of your sins and turned in faith to Jesus, you need to do this. You need to get your heart right now. Don't wait for another potential future day where you might have time to figure this all out. Invest your heart and your energy. Your eternity is on the line for it. And we'd be eager to help you walk through this with you. You need to put your faith in Jesus. And we would say the exact same gospel to somebody in China and Russia and Australia and London and Sudan and Afghanistan. That's what needs to happen overseas right now. People need to repent. God really is in control. You and I are not. Question, what could Daniel and his faithful compatriots have done when Nebuchadnezzar was coming against the walls of Jerusalem? What could they have done that swayed the outcome? Jeremiah did whatever he could. Obeyed exactly what God said. He preached against folly. He proclaimed what was true boldly. He was persecuted for it. He prayed on behalf of Israel and his people. But God had to set his heart against Judah and it would be destroyed. So what could Daniel and the faithful Israelites have done? Nothing. God had a purpose in Judah's destruction. It was a plan that he had laid before the foundations of the earth. When you and I view things even today in the present, Afghanistan, we must not miss that he is working all things according to the purpose of his will. This in no way removes personal responsibility for what's going on here. Not one bit. Our wicked rulers have blood on their hands for what is going on because they politicized a moment in history and many people will die and have. And they deserve to be called out and their only hope is to repent of their sins and turn in faith to Jesus. That's it. But you and I are to trust in him. We can't prepare our households. We can't prepare our homes and our families and all the material things in our lives for every possible future. We don't know what's coming. We don't know how it's going to play out. But we can prepare our hearts to be faithful men and women of God in whatever nation, whatever circumstance, in whatever time we live. 
Brothers and sisters, we must pray for fellow Christians in Afghanistan. Just as Daniel and his brothers, just as Jeremiah prayed for the people of their land. We must pray for the persecuted believers around the world. Not that all persecution just goes away, but that they would be strong enough to bear it. And that they would die like Christians. You see, there's, there's something worse than living. There's something, there's something worse than dying. There's something better than living. Dying apart from Christ. is worse than living today. Well, our hope is for stability in that region. We don't want to see death. Brothers and sisters, we're looking at a nation that hates God. And what does Jesus say about our enemies? Love them. Pray for them. Share the gospel with them. That's what we should want. If, you're, if your compassionate heart has led you to weep for the dying Muslims over in Afghanistan, amen. Praise be to God. I think that's where our hearts ought to be in a day like this. I think we ought to suppress whatever fury and rage and anger that comes to our hearts and ask that the Lord would convert that into compassion for even our enemies. Because the hope there is not just that the Taliban guys die. The hope is that the light of Jesus would shine on Afghanistan. That's the hope. And it's the only eternal hope that believers would model what it means to be a Christian. They would not forsake the gospel and deny their Lord Jesus under distress, but they would remain faithful to the end and bleed like Christians. Today, some of them are dying. We got to pray that not one drop of blood falls in vain. And on our behalf here, let us be reawakened to the reality of the global war against the cause of Christ, because that's what this is all about. Let us honor the sacrifice of our brothers and sisters who are willing to die for Jesus by pursuing a holiness here. Not using our freedom as a cover-up for doing evil. But let us leverage whatever freedom we have to proclaim the gospel and to pursue holiness and Christ-likeness, and to display this to the watching world, that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. None of this is happening apart from the word of the Lord. None of this is happening in a way that he is surprised. None of it is beyond his control. God is not nervously watching CNN to find out what goes down. And you and I can rely on him and prepare ourselves in faithfulness as Daniel, as his contemporaries did, as Jeremiah told him, we should prepare ourselves likewise. Let's pray. Father, this morning my heart is so broken for our own nation, for our country. I've watched what's going down and filled with rage. Oh, goodness. It's like it's bubbling just below the surface so much. And Lord, I don't want that. I want to be filled with your spirit. I want to be filled with joy. And I want to be grateful for the wonderful things we have today. And I want to be prayerful for the saints on the other side of the world who are dying and for the potential persecution that might come to us and our children here. And There's so many things that are spitting wildly around us. I pray that we would soak it in. 
I pray that we would not seek to just medicate against it and try to see um, past it by distractions, distract ourselves from the reality of the wicked things that are going down. I pray that we would use these opportunities to grow steadfast in our trust in you, our, our love for the word and truth, and our desire to worship you and to bow before King Jesus and to proclaim the gospel to others. Let us be the kind of people that when we pray for what's going on, when we, when we are persecuted for what's going on, when brothers and sisters on the other side of the world die for what's going on, the world will look and see there's something different about the gospel we proclaim. Father, awaken people to what is true. Help prepare us. Help prepare us as your faithful servants, citizens of heaven before anything else. Let us be those who are humble before you, trusting in what you do. Prepare us for faithfulness. We ask that you would do all these things because Jesus was perfect, because he was faithful, because he was righteous, because he endured persecution, because not one drop of his blood was shed in vain. Prepare a place for joy, everlasting, and remind us of it daily. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.